You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. I feel like when you fall in love, all the places that up until now you've avoided seeing you're crazy, that's the school. Falling in love is the school that helps you see the most of your crazy and wake up. But anything that gets past that ends up showing up in parenthood. So it's like having a kid cleans up the rest of the shadow that your partner wasn't able to show you, mm-hmm. even though they could see it. So I feel like it's an ex- excellent school for your consciousness, being a parent. It's the best school. Second mm. only to being in love. <laughs> Interesting. So I'm a new parent. I mean, not so new. It's been three, three and a half years and three and a half years for my son and my daughter yeah. is only a year now. And I find parenting to be the most rewarding and at the same point, I'm probably the most difficult thing that I do every day. <laughs> yeah, and let's look at why. Your children are basically mini Buddhas and they are acutely aware of whenever you are acting out of pattern, habit, compulsion, automatic patterns from your childhood. When you basically go unconscious and you're just doing a program, you're like a robot. They can spot it and they call you out on it. So they're like a never ending reflection for where you go unconscious. And so because we love our kids and we can see where when you go unconscious, it ends up hurting our kids. So them and being in love, I think both of them, it's the only time where the pain that you cause to another person because you go unconscious into a pattern, the pain is so agonizing that you're willing to do the hard work of not falling into the pattern. But it means you have to be mindful every moment, every moment. And so your kids are just keeping you on the ball every moment to not go into a pattern. Because you know, every time you go into a pattern, you're basically damaging them. And the reason we have the pattern is because our parents did that to us. Mm, Talk to me more about what is this pattern that we're talking about? Say you have a compulsion to get over upset about something. You get angry and you shudder out your frustration onto the child. They will react to it. You'll see the wince of hurt or the howl of pain or the contraction in their body. And you'll feel your own little shame plex of like, I just blasted them disproportionately. And that pain in your own body shows up as a, like a shame flag. And so in order to be the great parent that you want to be, you have to listen to that part of your conscience that's saying, hey, that was too much. That was not the right way to respond to that. And if you listen to that, it helps you iterate and upgrade the way you respond. So the pattern is the impulse to act in a way that's reminiscent of how one of your parents handled their stress. Mm. But basically in every couple, one person goes into anger and blame shame and one person goes into distress and fear and collapse. So coerce, bully, and collapse. Okay, fine, whatever. So every couple has these two patterns. And so you want to just watch which one you take on when you get upset. It's probably both at different times. Yeah, doesn't the role switch sometimes? Totally. Sometimes I collapse and sometimes I, but I tend to be less of a bully. My husband Mm -hmm. tends to be more of the angry bully type. And I tend to be more the distressed, fearful, anxious type. But over time, I'm noticing it's shifting. Mm. We've been together 12 years now. Yeah. And I loved, and I just want to say it is one of the episodes that I loved that you did with my wife, Nita. It was Mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. And for anybody that's listening to this podcast, we'll link it up below this episode for you to check it out. It was on the relationship dynamics Mm -hmm. and how to really handle conflict. We're not going to take that here because we're going to let people go listen to that podcast for that. What I want to talk about here is 
I see your presence and I see how you kind of even went to whether I asked the parenting question or this. And that shows that you have great game that you have set up within your mind and in your soul. You kind of have a great awareness towards what's happening, or at least that's how it seems Well, to I've me. been mapping the terrain. I think of it as um, topography, terrain, land- landscape that goes on between two humans. So between you and me, there's this space and the space has high points and low points and it's all emotional landscape. And my whole life has been mapping that interpersonal landscape between couples in love, mothers and children, siblings, like anywhere there's a relationship, there's a way of relating and there's rules and maps that govern what works and what doesn't. And that's just been my realm of study. So when I see someone behaving in a certain way, I usually can instantly track what's their motivation, what are they afraid of, what are they trying to get? It's just, when you do 10,000 hours, you just, you know, you start to just see invisible things and patterns. So yeah, it's all I really love paying attention to. Are there like four or five patterns that you see the most common or it's just two variants? No, there's lots of patterns, but the biggest category of pattern that I've ever seen, if I could scale up or chunk up, it's people tend to fall in these two buckets of really good at selfing, saying what they want, what they need, what they believe, like asserting their selfhood. And this other bucket is othering. They're more empathics who tune into other people's needs and wants and feelings very well. They're good at othering, but they're not that good at selfing. So they're really tuned into everybody else and what they need. And you need both of these technologies to have a healthy relationship. So I've only ever seen couples that succeed long-term where one is really good at selfing, one is really good at othering. They find each other so that they can cross-train and learn to do their underdeveloped skill. So all successful couples tend to have these two sacred polarities and then they train each other. And over time, like 10 years later, they become better at the one that they're not good at, Mm. right? And does that lead to more conflict because of selfing and othering? And loosely, and I also understand from the episode that we talked about previously, a little bit about it, but maybe not as much as... So the question is, um, it's a conflict. Absolutely. So people who are good at tuning into other people's emotions and needs and wants they are so good at it, they call that love, being attuned to another person, curious about what they need. Oh, is that is my guest hungry? Oh, is my child feeling scared? They're very good at that. And they code that as love. So when they see someone who's very self-oriented, their instinct is, you're not loving, you're selfish. You should be loving like me, attuned to what everybody needs. The selfing person feels like, Uh, actually love is tuning into what you need and want and being able to represent because how else is there anyone going to be able to be with you if you don't know if you're hungry, you don't know if you're scared. Like you need to be able to say what's on your mind. That's what you need to have healthy love. If you're busy worrying about what everybody else needs, how can you be in a relationship? No one can trust you because you're not attuned to yourself. So what I've learned over time is to have a healthy relationship, you need to have equal parts of both. And that's why these two polarities come together in romance Because some part of the selfer knows I'm incomplete. And true love is about having the ability to know what you need and want and the ability to empathically tune into another. And if you don't have both, you have an unhealthy relationship. I think of a relationship as like an an organism that's alive. And the organism breathes. It breathes in, together, we're tuned in, we're connecting. It breathes out, separate, individual, sovereign autonomy. It breathes in, it breathes out. And if you don't have equal amounts of breathing in and breathing out, selfing and othering, 
the relationship is lopsided. Mm -hmm. And so that's why every successful couple tends to have these two polarities. And so, yes, it causes conflict because they're fighting over what love is. But the truth is love includes both. Mm. So they're both right. It's both right. And does that mean, and, and maybe I'm not understanding this well enough, but in a modern way of looking at ourselves as people, what seems to be or what seems to me is the most common thing that people say that one must do is to understand themselves and value their own personal values and understand how they are really understanding themselves and yeah. really working off of their needs. Do you feel there is a... But up to a point, because if you keep going, then you end up being on the spectrum of self-absorbed, narcissistic, mm-hmm. sociopath, psychopath, mm-hmm. right? Because they're very tuned into their own needs and wants to the exclusion yeah. of others. Yeah. So both of these extremes turn into the codependent dynamic, Okay, and it's most extreme codependence. You'll have a self-absorbed narcissistic partner who only cares about their needs and wants, does not have a narcissist, a classical narcissist, doesn't have the wiring for shame and guilt. So -hmm. they actually don't know how to empathize with another. It's not like they could tune into someone else's feelings, but they're choosing not to because they're evil. It's actually Mm -hmm. they can't. Kind of like an old computer motherboard. If it's missing a video card, you can't play videos. It's not a bad motherboard. It's not a bad computer. It's just missing the wiring. So when people realize, oh, they're just missing the wiring, you know, it takes out the moralizing. So you have this narcissist who doesn't have guilt and shame and doesn't know how to empathize. They only care about their needs and wants. That person often in a codependent dynamic attracts a devoted, empathic, I'll do whatever you want. I'll just focus on your needs and wants. So for a while, it's this great setup. Focus on me. Okay, I'll focus on you. And they're both focused in one person. And it works for a while until the empath starts to build a backbone, build self-esteem and realize this shit don't work. It's not sustainable. (laughs) And then that's when the, the conflict begins, right? And the whole point of a relationship, in my opinion, is for both partners to grow past their shadow. So for the more self-absorbed person to learn, hey, there's other people on the planet in the room. Let's see what other people need. And if they don't learn that, they'll forever be stuck struggling with relationships. They'll never fully feel intimate with another human. They won't have strong friendships. They won't be able to hold a long-term relationship. Their kids will be alienated. Like they just can't figure it out. And if you only worry about other people's wants and don't develop a strong sense of your inner self, no one will actually ever feel safe around you. And they can't lean on you because you're not strong and solid and grounded. It's like leaning on a camping tent. Mm-hmm. It'll just fall over. So developing a strong sense of self makes you reliable. And so, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but- um, You are. Yeah. (laughs) Keep going, you're doing great, yeah. I think of conflict as an attempt of two different perspectives trying to collaborate. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to stretch and broaden the other person's perspective so that it includes theirs. And so every time a conflict happens between two people, what's really going on is they're trying to say, hey, I have another idea here and I'd like you to understand me. And so- the collaboration turns into a conflict if one or both partners coerces, bullies, attacks, intimidates, threatens, or collapses. Okay, fine, sure, we'll do it your way, whatever. Okay, mm -hmm, but I really don't want to. Either coerce or collapse happening turns a collaboration into a conflict. Mm. And so what I do with, with my clients, couples, is I help them turn the conflicts back into a collaboration. Because mm. a collaboration is when both perspectives are being held by the relationship. It's it's like, you know, when you, you need to have a discussion and she goes, yeah, but blah, 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 blah. And you go, 
wow, I never thought of it that way. And she actually opens your way of thinking about it and it upgrades you. Mm-hmm. That's what's trying to happen in a conflict. But people give up mm-hmm. and they start because threatening. It gets, for, somehow I think it gets into conflict with values or I don't know what it exactly. gets into conflict with. Well, what with, happens but, is, yeah. well, it is- Maybe not values. Maybe no, it is values. values. I think every conflict is a values conflict. But what, instead of you going, hey, Nita's the most extraordinary woman I've ever met on the planet. There's got to be some genius behind this seemingly crazy thing she's doing. Mm -hmm. Let me ask questions and investigate and see what's the genius behind there. Instead, Mm -hmm. we assume our partner is stupid, criminal, insane. Something's wrong with them because that shit don't sound right. Mm -hmm. And we forget to keep our curiosity open and keep digging until we find the genius. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be like, that's why you're doing that crazy shit? Mm. Oh, okay. That kind of makes sense. And then you broaden your perspective to include theirs. Mm-hmm. that's how you use your partner to grow you and actualize you, which is the whole point of relationship, is to be an evolutionary crucible for you to develop yourself to the next level. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be married to a yes person who's just like, yes, whatever. They're not useful. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's not fun either. Yeah. It's just too easy. Not not easy, but it's just not interesting. Boring. <laughs> boring. Yeah. Boring is the right word. It's just not, not interesting and boring very much. So I totally hear you. Do you find that the path from conflict to collaboration is language or do you think it's another way that you really... It's language, but it starts before language. It starts with a particular belief. Mm -hmm. And the belief that allows someone to go towards a collaboration is the belief of the following. To seemingly different ideas and perspectives, there always exists an overlap in the Venn diagram. Any two seemingly different circles, I believe if I could have a long enough conversation without someone threatening or collapsing we can get to a place where they have a shared value or a shared piece of reality. And then just having faith that that shared reality exists allows you to look for it in a conversation with more intentionality. If you don't believe that exists, you're never going to look the way you would look for keys that you left in the house that you know you were left in the house last night, right? If you left your keys in a restaurant and you were at three restaurants that night, maybe the keys are there, maybe they're not. So after about 10 minutes of looking, you're like, okay, fuck it, somebody took it. But if you know you came home with the keys last night and you wake up in the morning and can't find your keys, you're going to look in a different way because it has to be in the house. So just believing and having faith that there exists an emergent perspective that is higher than either yours or your partner's that will include both of yours, that belief is what you need to start collaboration. And I, you know, with my clients, I basically have to walk them through a collaboration and show them, look, look how we got here mm-hmm. to this new solution where neither one of you had to give up your sacred need. We found a new mm. third emergent solution. So until they see it happen, we tend to be cynical and be like, it's never going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, you're crazy, or this is because you were wounded when you were in your family of origin. Like, and we make up some story that has us give up on continuing the conversation until you find each other. Mm. Yeah, I think of a conflict as like two people in a dark room trying to find each other. They can't. And if they don't believe they can find each other, they'll give up. Yeah. But I'm there to remind them, no, we're going to find each other. Don't mm-hmm. give up. And then to keep teaching them how to breathe and calm their body's nervous system so that they can stay in the conversation. Walk us through how would that look like in a coaching session? Let's say there were two clients that came to you, let's say husband, wife, or yeah. however that is. And they are the two people lost in dark room. Yeah. All right. They're finding the same fight, which is probably the case. Yeah. Always. And like they're usually they're shaming the or fight. blaming each other. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how would that conversation, like just like, you know, broad yeah. strokes. Um, yeah. Or if you could think of a story. So the that first happened. thing I do is I suss out which partner 
has more resource or room in their heart to be the courageous leader. So I tune in, like, who's bitching and grumbling the most? Is the angriest or the most shut down? They have less resource, so I won't work with them first. I'll work with the person who seems to have a little more resource. And I'm basically going to be smuggling to them, hey, I can tell that you have some energy and I can tell that you are committed to finding a way through this. And I basically call on their inner hero Mm -hmm. or heroine. And I'm like, okay, you and me, we're going to find a way to open the heart of your partner. Are you with me? And so what I do is I'll have them upgrade their willingness to take some kind of responsibility for creating the current state of affairs. Because they're both in a gridlock because one's blaming and the other's blaming. So I'm going to take the stronger, more resourced person and see if I can inspire them to feel like a hero by owning something, by leading courageously the relationship in a new direction. So that's what I will do. I'll become an ally to the more resourced partner and say, I know you want to be a great wife and I know you're committed to this relationship working. And I know that probably the reason you're frustrated is because you felt unsafe or whatever. And I'll give them a way to pull the relationship in a new direction. And as they do that, I'll give them props and encouragement so that the other partner is like, well, I want some props. I want encouragement. Like I can be a hero too. And so then I'll help them take more responsibility and show how, yeah, maybe they could have done X, Y, and Z. You know, when you ratchet something up, like you nudge this side, then you nudge this side. I'm mm-hmm. basically ratcheting both sides up till they find each other's heart. And I might even say something like, if they're really stuck, sometimes I use this like ninja tool where I remind them that I know you're frustrated with your partner, but they are the most amazing human you've ever met in your life. That's why you married them, right? And then I'll just sneak that in to remind them that that's true, that they're fighting with someone that they actually love. And sometimes I'll even throw in this tool, like, You know, I know if your husband suddenly called up and said he'd had a heart attack or was in a car accident, you drop this issue right now. So I kind of press them up against emergency situation or death just for a second because death wakes you up out of all your crazy trances. And we all know that if something like that came online, you'd desist in the argument. So sometimes I pull that trick out if they're really stuck, just kind of bitch slap them a bit. (laughs) <laughs> I'm basically, yeah, I'm ratcheting them up and I'm giving them an opportunity to lead. What's happening in a conflict is both are like this. I'm not moving till you move. And they need someone to inspire them to lead the relationship into a new possibility. And usually the person who has the most sort of creative flexibility is the one that can lead. So I find out who that is and then I ally with them and then I nudge them towards leading the relationship somewhere more open. And then the other person always follows. I don't know if yeah. that's very no, that's no, 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 it's not. It's not. It's very, very thoughtful. It's different than what I've usually heard. So it's interesting, that's for sure. Because usually I've, I've said, seen the relationship because you bring both the people together and address it together. Whereas you're like, oh, I'm going to work with one person, then one person, bring them to the place where they can actually have a conversation and not just fight. Well, yeah, so... Everybody thinks of humans as the individuals that they're working with as a coach. Mm -hmm. But as a relationship coach, I don't see the husband and wife as my clients. My client is the relationship itself. It's like a little child that has two co-parents. And my job is to make sure that that child is safe. And if either of the parents, the husband or the wife, get in the way of the health of this relationship baby, I'm going to lovingly call them out on it. Mm -hmm. That's what they hired me to do. So I'm here to guard the sacredness of the relationship. And that's who I work for. 
in some ways, I either work for the relationship or sometimes I say I work for the future unborn child of the couple. Mm-hmm. Like I'm working so that their parents are aligned so that when they have a child, the child isn't fragmented by these conflicts. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm watching how is what these two people are saying impacting the relationship. It's like, imagine if your son was listening to you and need to argue in the kitchen. How you would talk if you knew he was listening would be different. Mm-hmm. So I have the couple, imagine your relationship was a little entity and it was like listening to how you were fighting. Would its self-esteem be increasing or decreasing? And so I help the couple learn to track the relationship self-esteem. And I think of a couple as like two legs on a body. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to help the relationship learn to walk. And if one leg is not working, you know, I help that one, then I help the other one. And I try to get a, a graceful walk because collaboration is when a relationship learns to walk and go do something. Mm. Sure, it's great to be in love, but if you and your partner aren't able to create value as a couple in the world, like the world needs to have a reason that it's clapping for you being together. Otherwise, what use are you to the world mm-hmm. if your couplehood isn't a contribution? And so I'm always trying to help a couple become a contribution as a dyadic entity. Mm-hmm. So. That's why I work with each part because the the people are just parts of the client. The client is the the relationship. Which is beautiful. I love that because it's different than what I've heard usually. It's like, oh, my client is a relationship. Beautiful way to look at Mm -hmm. it because then your interest is also different. It's not who won. It's more like I'm never on the side. I'm never on either side. I'm on the side of the relationship. Yeah, it's like the relationship is the entity that you're really working with. And I'm fighting for its health. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. What would you say is some of the signs that you see and you go, this is a healthy relationship? One of the quintessential signs that indicate to me that a couple's got a healthy love relationship, any romance or otherwise, is when I'm able to show one person how their behavior is causing an owie on the heart of the other. And once they realize that they've inadvertently been hurting the other person, they instantly desist. They instantly change the behavior. Whenever I see that pattern, I'm just like, my heart melts because it just reminds me that what it means to love someone is to be unwilling to continuously hurt them mm-hmm. and to start looking at how am I unwittingly hurting my partner? Because none of us try to hurt our partner. We're just doing it while we're busy doing our crazy. Mm-hmm. But once you feel and hear the howling owie of your partner's pain, that wakes you the hell up and it shifts your behavior. So that's usually an indication of a healthy relationship is you're unwilling to persist in the same crazy behavior once you hear how much it hurts your partner. You feel their pain, which is why it's so important to show your pain to your partner. Most of us just show our grumble and our anger. We don't actually say, ouch, that left an ache in my heart and show your tears and your underbelly. Because when someone loves you, the feeling of you being willing to be in your pain is what wakes them up out of the trance. If you just stay protected and you don't show your pain and you're just like, you shouldn't have done that thing, they can't feel your pain. So then they're not inspired to change. They're busy putting up their guard to protect from the attack. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to show a couple like, you want your partner to feel your pain? You have to be willing to feel it yourself first and show them it. That's Mm -hmm. what inspires the change. And it's very vulnerable and takes a lot of courage to show your pain rather than show your grumble. So that's a lot of what I help people develop. Are there any tools to be able to show your pain to your partner? Yeah, I mean, just saying owie. Mm -hmm. Like instead of, why did you leave the thing on the kitchen counter? I told you to put it away. That whole story confuses them. Like if you just say, I saw you didn't lock the front door last night. Ouch, 
I just want you to know when I woke up and saw the front door unlocked, I had like a seven out of 10 fear response. So saying I was afraid, giving a number so that people have a sense because our partners, they know we're upset, but they don't know how upset. They're like, Mm -hmm. is it a two? Is it a three? Is it a seven? They don't know. So I think it's really important to say calibrations of how you're out, how ouchy. So just saying, ouch, owie, I was scared, I was hurt. I was scared, not you scared me. I was hurt, not you hurt me. So just reporting on your feelings with a number. You just go, yesterday when you do it X, Y, Z, I felt sad about eight out of 10. And then shut up. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if Nita said, yesterday when you did X, Y, Z, I felt sad eight out of 10. What would be the next thing you'd say? I would be curious. Curious. Yeah. Most of us are so busy trying to say what we're angry about, we never get our partners being curious. Mm-hmm. They're busy trying to protect and defend and they're not even curious. So the way to get to your partner to be curious about your owie is to just share the feeling, no shame, blame, or make wrong, calibrated number, and then wait for their curiosity to pull it out. Mm-hmm. And then they'll ask questions. Well, what was hurting and why did it hurt? And then they're more willing to listen because they asked for it. So that's a really subtle tool. Mm -hmm. Calibrating, naming the feeling, using I statements, not you statements. Oh, here's another one. Whenever you share what you're frustrated about, always share it in a way that makes it inarguable. So if you say, you were late picking me up or like you you made me angry yesterday. So they could argue, no, I didn't make you angry. I just did ABC and then you made a big deal out of it and then you got angry. If you say, yesterday when you did XYZ, I felt angry. Mm -hmm. They can't argue with it. They can't say no because you're saying your feelings. So you always want to say a statement that's inarguable. No one can argue with it. That's a really tricky way to do it. Two more things. Whenever you're giving a- And you make it unarguable because you don't want to turn the feeling into an argument. Well, no, I'm saying that when you're in a conflict, if you say, I'm thirsty, can you get me some water? They can't argue with you being thirsty. Mm -hmm. If you say, I'm thirsty because you did X, Y, and Z, they can always try and argue back. So it's just a trick to make sure your partner doesn't argue back. If you're going to give a complaint or feedback to your partner or anybody, we tend to give reflections that have a WTF energy. Like, did you forget to put the cap on the toothpaste? There's a judgy, shamey, blamey energy. A little bit of WTF. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to give feedback, the trick is to scrape off the WTF and do MLK. MLK stands for Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King had every reason in the world to be WTF of anyone I've ever known. Mm -hmm. I mean, his people were oppressed, but he didn't. He said, I have a dream. I see a future where XYZ and ABZ. Like if you can take your WTF complaint and turn it into MLK, Mm -hmm. where it's an inspirational vision of what you see your partner could be rather than what they're doing wrong, that is a magnificent heuristic is turn WTFs into MLKs. Mm-hmm. There's lots of tools, but... Uh, these are yeah. great. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't want you to tell all your tools that is for people who take your coaching program and then actually experience Oh, and the them. last one is if you have a complaint about anything ever, tune into what is the request behind the complaint. Instead of complaining, figure out what is the thing you want. You always leave the cap off the toothpaste. Instead of that, it's, I would really love it if you could leave the cap on the toothpaste because then there's no toothpaste over the counter and then I have a really great experience in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth. Say the thing you want as a request rather than a complaint. So turn your complaint into a request and then give your partner a chance to live into it. Beautiful, beautiful. I have a related question. It comes from 
what's the role of a partner? I'm talking right now as the male partner, yeah. right? So a lot of times what I feel is there is many roles that I have to play or I'm expected to play. I, maybe I don't have to, but at least that's my experience of it. Let's just talk about my experience. My experience of it is I feel like I have to be emotional support. I have to be financial support. I have to be this, this. Not that she's asking me to be that, but it feels like that's my responsibility. Yeah. And a lot of times I feel like, fuck, that's a lot that yeah. I am supposed to be. Is that that that's just my experience? I just need to learn more and grow into it? Or is it more like, no, you could trade what your responsibilities could be and could have a container to talk about that as well. And is that a good thing for a relationship long term? Well, I want to loosely stay in gender with male, female. Okay, yeah. But I think more in all relationships, there's a we-centric person and a me-centric person, kind of mm-hmm. like the selfing and the othering, right? Yeah. And men tend to be loosely the more me-centered and the women tend to be the we-centered, but they can be inverted. So I think mm-hmm. two sacred polarities make a couple. It could be gender-based, but it's always a we and a me, okay? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the male or the masculine role. Mm-hmm. Let's go way back to like Indian Vedas, mm-hmm. right? Shiva, Shakti. What is Shiva's role? Shiva is the void. Shiva is the context, the platform on which Shakti dances. Mm -hmm. So I think if you always hearken back to those original imprints, what, so Nita Shakti, what allows Nita to be the most expressed and enlivened in her life? Why is that important? A, I love her. B, she's the mother of my children. And the more expressed and enlightened and actualized she is, the more successful my children will be, right? And your life gets better. When she's happy, the whole world's happy. So the question to ask as a man using the gender type stereotype here is what can I do to maximally allow her to actualize and dance her biggest dance? Mm -hmm. And what I've usually found is when you get into that inquiry, the version of Ajit that has to come forward to produce that is usually a more extraordinary version of Ajit than would have been available had you not asked the question. Mm -hmm. So in other words... Her needs for actualization and growth calls you to your next level of greatness. Is it work? Yes, absolutely. But I guarantee you, if I had Nita here, she probably has her own story about how come my roles are everything. When I work with couples, both partners Mm -hmm. think they're doing everything. Mm -hmm. Almost all the time. Mm -hmm. Each one of them thinks it's unfair to the other. So what I've Mm -hmm. learned is whenever a couple's in love, whatever amount of hardship, struggle, headache, frustration, work, that you have to do, it's always, always exactly the same amount that Nita has to do, but you can't mm-hmm. see where she does it. Mm-hmm. And she can't see where you do it. So she thinks she's doing more and you think you're doing more. But from out here as a relationship coach, I've learned it's always the same. Mm-hmm. And this helps me when I'm bitching about my husband and I think he doesn't do enough mm-hmm. or he thinks I'm not doing enough. I just remember it's always equal. Yes, so and helps. I think my question was a little bit different. I don't think it's doing is not a problem. Okay. I don't think that's not what I'm trying to ask. What I'm trying to ask is, I'm trying to find how to frame it better. Uh, You know how, like in anything, we have many things that we do, right? Let me relate it to business. Oh, like different hats that you wear. Yeah, different hats Mm -hmm. that you wear. And sometimes as, and it may be just me or it may be all men or it may be all women. I have no idea if this is a common problem or not. But the hats that I have to wear... Some hats I find it way more difficult to wear, and I almost don't want to wear what, it. Yeah, give me an example of so the hardest. For example, hat. so sometimes what happens is uh, while I'm always present for my wife to speak freely to me about anything mm-hmm. and everything, I have a problem when somebody wins about anything. I can't take it. Like I just Wind? can't take it. 
went, uh, you know, like when you are frustrated bent. with something bent. yeah, oh, and you yeah. feel negative about something, yeah. like I can't take it. Like I, I viscerally, I cannot so take it from my you mother. Collapse, it's not, you collapse. Like I collapse and I want to run away and I don't want to talk to the person ever again. Yeah. I don't know why I have that programming, okay. but I cannot do it. Like I can't do it with my mother. I cannot yeah. do it with my, my, my wife. I find it hard to do it with my friends. You can totally talk about it. an emotional experience. Totally that's it. fine. But if you say the world is fucked in any way, I'm like, fuck this. I don't want to be a part of this conversation. Yeah. And it's like, I just, I know I become a different person. You disassociate, it sounds like. Yeah. You run away internally. You go quiet. What happens? Yeah, I'm, li- yeah, I'm like, I want you to shut up. Like, I don't right, say Right, but what happens on words. the inside? If um, the camera is observing you, yeah. you just go quiet. Do you run away from the room? What do you actually do? I go quiet and I, in my head, I'm like, why are they telling this to me? And you're frustrated and angry. I'm very frustrated. Okay, good. Okay, got it. So let me ask you a question. If you had a magic wish and you no longer had this issue and you could just be with it, what's possible in your life then? Like if you were able to just have that roll off your back and be like, oh, Nita's upset. I love her. Sorry, she's upset. Yeah, I mean, it would be better in that situation and I'll probably be able to accept for what is. And would you feel um, more powerful, stronger, higher self-esteem? Like, would you rather be that version of Ajit? I don't know if I'll feel more powerful. That's the thing. I I don't think that affects my self-esteem at all. At least that's the viewpoint I have of it as of now. I feel like we are all in this world to do great things and it's distracting to me. So it could be like, I I don't know. It doesn't take away anything from me. If it comes at me and I have to accept it, I'll accept it and I do that right now. But it's not empowering for me. It doesn't yeah. make me feel good at the end of the conversation. Totally. I feel like now I have to like declutter this. Yeah, totally. It's pretty standard. I yeah. mean, nobody likes to have someone bent on them. Yeah. And pretty much everybody shrinks in response yeah. to it. So there's two parts of it. It's possible that the level of venting you get from Nita or whoever is too much and disproportionate. And there's some feedback you could give to them about, hey, could you say it in a different way? Could you not attack me? You can always shape how you get the feedback. Mm-hmm. So that's some work that could be on their side. But there's also some work on your side, which is if someone's upset and they're having a breakdown and they're frustrated, they want to have permission in this lifetime to just be able to fully express and not have to micromanage your needs in that mm-hmm. moment, right? Kind of like when your kids are upset, your job as a parent is to let them be upset, soothe them, not them have to micromanage your feelings, right? Mm-hmm. So your partner and your friends, they want to be able to just have a chaotic breakdown and know that you are resilient and powerful enough to just let that move through you, fall off your back and you don't get triggered or take it on too seriously. Mm -hmm. And so there is a skill you could build, like a resilience Mm -hmm. skill, a coping skill to handle someone's venting. Mm -hmm. What it'll involve is, because you mentioned your mom, probably when you were young, your mom did this to you and it was so overwhelming, you couldn't handle it. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said you didn't like your mom doing it. I don't like anybody doing it. I was yeah. just trying to. But the first person relate, who would have ever yeah. done it would have been your parents. Probably. Yeah. Right. And probably my mom, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So, well, first of all, I just feel sad that there was a little boy whose mom rented on him. And I know mm-hmm. your mom was doing the best she could. And she was a great mom because you're yeah. here. But our parents do crazy things because they didn't have any skills. Mm-hmm. So, the first thing I'd want to do is just really witness and honor the part of you that feels scared and overwhelmed and uncomfortable with that stuff coming at you. Mm-hmm. And to just dignify that I get it. I don't like it either. And basically, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I get that. And so I've been there. I'm actually just like you this way. Mm-hmm. And I'm with someone who likes to vent. Mm-hmm. So I've realized that part of why we choose people who like to vent is because 
our internal personal developing self knew that we'd be more successful in the world and more powerful if we learned to cope with that. So we chose partners who force us to build the muscle to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But we're kind of like this. I don't want to do the work, right? I don't want to go to the gym and learn the technology. So there's a technology of coping. Mm -hmm. It starts with noticing you're getting dysregulated or upset or disturbed by someone's upsetness towards you and learning to breathe and regulate and ground your nervous system so that you can create safety in your body, even though the world is having a breakdown. And that skill is a really important skill for parenting and for being a powerful leader because powerful leaders have to stay calm when the world is losing its shit. That's part of what it means to be a leader. So I just see this as curriculum that reality Mm -hmm. is sending our way to build the muscles of being great leaders. And so I've spent the last seven years really learning how to breathe, calm myself, ground and regulate when someone's venting at me so that I can handle it, so that it doesn't trigger me. And so that I can say, hey, I get that you're upset right now. I need you to take a breath. I want to hear everything you have to say. I need you to calm down a minute and stop just blaming and venting on me. I want to hear it. Let's take a breath together. Okay. And training them to be mm-hmm. less venti while being able to handle their full expression of anger. So mm-hmm. it's a complex dance, but it's worth practicing because I think it'll give you more flexibility in multiple situations where you kind of feel stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True, true. And very fair assessment in the sense that maybe it's just a skill to build. It's possible. It is. Yeah. It's the hardest skill there is to build. We talked a lot about relationships mm-hmm. and I know you're also a phenomenal coach. Mm-hmm. How did you got into coaching? How did you start your journey here? Oh gosh, I've been coaching ever since I was in middle school. Kids in the playground who were having fights with each other and high school girlfriends who had boyfriends. Like I've been coaching on relationships for as long as I can remember. I was an IT consultant for about, I don't know, 12 years and telecoms IT. And I would mediate between the business development marketing people in the company and then the programmers and the developers. So it was like mediating between a warring married couple because they just (laughs) want to sell shit. And then the programmers are like, we have to make code. They had different agendas. And so I was an uh, IT software project manager and I made enough money and I realized like, I love mediating, but I don't care about software. I want to mediate between emotional relationships. And Mm -hmm. so I moved to New York after working in Europe as an IT consultant and I quit IT and I saved up some money to live for a couple of years. And I had a friend who was a weight loss coach and she would help the person lose weight and then she'd send the client to me to help them find the relationship. So I slowly built my practice. This was back when I used to see people in person, Mm -hmm. like for like an hour and a half and charge, you know, like a hundred dollars back then. (laughs) And over the years, I've just really honed my craft. I've taken a lot of, you know, NLP, hypnosis, study different coaching modalities. And I have a lot of different toolkits that I pull from. And now I just can't believe I get to do the thing I love the most, help people map their emotions and fall more in love, you know, and help couples. Yeah. And you run a coaching institute with your husband. I do. We do. We have a coaching school called Virtual Coach. It's a three-month program. And we teach... My husband's kind of a famous marketer and a businessman. And so he teaches really sophisticated technology for thinking about marketing and getting clients and creating an online business. And I'm really good at teaching the inner game of coaching. Like, how do you deal with someone who's stuck in a pattern, who doesn't know how to take action, who's afraid, insecure, has doubts? It's all invisible, but Mm -hmm. that's my domain. And so teaching my students the different tools and modalities to use to help create amazing results for their clients... That's, we're kind of like the head and the heart and we teach together in the coaching program. 
Oh, that's amazing. And so the work that you do with the inner game, mm-hmm. is there like an overarching structure around it or yeah. more? What is it? Yeah. Well, I like to give a whole bunch of tools, but I basically have like four to five core questions that I model every coaching session on. And it loosely goes like this. Like, so I ask a client, what do you most want to achieve or create? What's the dream outcome? So I get them connected to the dream, the vision. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally trying to get specs on their dream because I see myself as a coach, as a midwife to their future successful self. I'm an ambassador for their dream and I'm going to stand for their dream even when they forget about it. So I need to understand what that dream outcome is. So yeah, what's the dream outcome? Two, how will you know when you get there? So I want to know what is their evidence procedure? How do they know when they've achieved financial security or they've become a famous musician? Because if they don't have a sense of what, indicates we've arrived, then we are never going to achieve the goal. So we have to get very specific. How will you know when you become an author? Is it when you've written the book or you have to already publish the book or get really clear? So what's the dream outcome? How will you know when you get there? Then what's it like now, which is the problem state, the struggle, really getting into the nitty gritty of their heartbreak and their pain. What's something in your life that you really value right now that you think you might have to give up if you got the dream outcome. Mm. So that's the kind of question I might ask to get at the payoff they get from staying in the current situation. So Mm. anytime someone's trying to get an outcome and they don't have it after three months, there's some ecological protective system in their psyche that's guarding the status quo, which is why they can't get the outcome. So I'm trying to uncover that payoff. Yeah, those are the four main questions. And that's kind of like the skeletal scaffolding on which I hang a coaching session. But then Mm. I come at it from many different angles. Parts mm-hmm. conflict resolution, using metaphor. I use my imagination and intuition a lot during sessions. But you're training a coach and being able to coach using that mm-hmm. for broad strokes of yeah. questions to really go. Do you suggest tools or do you suggest more like, hey, let's play with this? What is the underlying coaching ability that a person's learning? You know, to me, the key to coaching, if I could distill coaching down to one thing, it's not having a bunch of fancy tools and techniques in your toolkit or having all these solutions. It's actually about listening with curiosity to what the person is saying they want and need. So really listening and honoring your own curiosity to guide you to ask questions. Tuning into the part of you that cares for that person, actualizing on their dream. So curiosity, care. And then I think coaching is distilled down to this statement. I believe in you. Like that's what they're actually paying for. That person has a dream. And the reason they're struggling with the dream is because they don't believe either they deserve it, that they can get it, that it's possible. They don't believe in themselves. That's what it comes down to. It's usually not, I don't know what to do. They don't know what to do because they don't believe they can have it. They don't believe they deserve it. There's nobody in the planet standing beside them, holding their hand and saying, you've got this and I've got you. And together, we're going to do this. And I believe in you. That's really the essence of coaching. So in the program, I really teach the students how to get to the place where they can believe in another person's dream. And the truth is you can't believe in another person's dream if you're not living out your dreams. So your ability to coach another person is capped out by your ability to actually generate results in your life. One of the mottos in our program is your life as a coach, your life is your marketing. So you have to build a life that you love. So a big part of our coaching program is getting our students to create a life that they're proud of and that they love and then coaching from that space with their clients. Mm. Because it's hard to believe in another person if you don't believe in yourself. So that's, 
I'm trying so to true. simplify it. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's so powerful because, I mean, that's the first work that a coach does, yeah. the work for themselves mm-hmm. and build the confidence in themselves mm-hmm. and believe in themselves. Annie, it was fantastic talking to you. How is it that people can know more about your program, can know more about you, can learn more from you? Yeah, well, they can check out my website. It's AnnieLala.com. A- can you spell it? Yeah, yeah. A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A.com. Double N, double L. I'll have a lot of free stuff on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Lala Bird, L-A-L-L-A-B-I-R-D. I'm always doing videos with free content about how to resolve conflicts and how to do dating. And then my husband and I have this really amazing program called Virtual Coach, where we do three months of comprehensive inner game and outer game, all the business and marketing and technology, and then the tools and skills to really create amazing outcomes for your clients. And yeah. If you're interested, they can just join my list and I'll let them know when when the next program's opening. Absolutely. So go over to AnnieLala.com and sign up for Annie's list or at least follow her on Instagram and you can get to learn more about what Annie's doing in the world next. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining you're today. So it was welcome. a fantastic conversation. Mm-hmm. I loved absolutely every part of it. Great. Thank you, Thank you for having me.